Good morning and welcome. It's a blessing to gather together on the Lord's Day. It's certainly a blessing to welcome our guests and our visitors. And we pray that the Lord would bless you uh, during this time of worship. Um, You've all received, if if you've received a bulletin, also an announcement bulletin. Uh, Just two things I would uh, point out. Um, One is that if you have children in Christian day school and are interested in participating in the Christian education program, um, we need you to sign up on the table out in the narthex um, and complete the form today, if you would. Um, If you have questions, just see a deacon about that. Um, Also note that office bearer training um, is scheduled for tomorrow, which is a week later than normal. Um, because of convention last week, Um, but we certainly encourage you to join us for that, um, including uh, married couples. We're going to talk about marriage mentoring again and uh, encourage you to join us for that. But right now we have the greatest privilege we see each week, and that's to gather in the presence of God among His people to worship that we might do that in a way that's pleasing to God. Let's set aside all of the other cares and concerns and ask the Lord to equip us and to focus our hearts on Him as we join our hearts in a moment of silent prayer and then we'll conclude praying together. Father, each one of us has been brought to this place by your fatherly hand. You know each one of our hearts. You know where we stand before you. So we pray that you would work in the hearts of each one gathered here this day. That you would apply your word, that you would uh, truly bring it home by your spirit. And that each one of us might be used to bring honor and glory unto you which is the apex, the climax of our very purpose. We ask this all now in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Let's stand together. The Lord calls us this morning to worship with these words from Psalm 145. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And His greatness is unsearchable. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Congregation of our Lord Jesus, from where does your help come? Our help comes from the Lord, the Maker of heaven and earth. Hear now His greeting. 
grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing praise together to the Lord from our Trinity Psalter hymnal, Psalm 145, Selection D. In Exodus 20, God gives us his law, but he gives that law, which, frankly, the heart of it is written on the hearts of all men and displayed in the creation, but he gives it with the specificity we find in the Ten Commandments to us as a unique people, as a covenant people, a people who have been delivered from our slavery to sin just as surely as as Israel was delivered from their slavery to Egypt. And there's a reason for that. There are reasons for that. In part, to humble us before Him that we might acknowledge our sinfulness and our need for Christ, but also in part that our lives might be so transformed that people will want to know what has happened. 
how we've been changed. What is the hope that is within us? And so God says to us who have been delivered by his hand, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you nor your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, all those commandments, they really summarize two commandments, which themselves are a summary of one. Because the heart and soul of our calling and our obligation before our Creator and our Savior is that we should love the Lord our God with all our heart with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. This is the first, the great, the overwhelming commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now here's the thing. If, if we take that law and we try to use it as a ladder to climb our way up to God, we'll fail every time. We can't attain to the perfection that would withstand God's judgment. But we don't have to. Just as Israel was delivered from Egypt, not by their own might or their own wisdom, but by God's power, so we are delivered out of our sin by the power of God in Christ, who paid the price of God's justice against our sin, who lived a life of perfect righteousness, which is accounted to all who trust in Him. Our calling is to live in such a way that we show our gratitude and to always be prepared to give a reason for that hope within us. Psalm 34 reminds us of that calling. David testifies to his deliverance both physical and temporal deliverance from his enemies, but also spiritual and eternal deliverance from his sin. When he says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me out of all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. 
The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Beloved, that is the confession that ought to be on the lips of every one of God's people. As we confess what He has done for us, as we confess how graciously He has treated us, and as we call out to those around us and say, just listen, hear what He has done, and I will be happy to attest to it. And we do that, we should do that, to one another. Last week I had the privilege of leading a... um, a workshop at convention on peer pressure. And I emphasized to the kids that while worldly peer pressure is bad, God has given us good peer pressure to bless us. And we call that the church. We are called to build up one another, to encourage one another, to remind one another of what the Lord has done for us. Leading each other in the way of righteousness. And we do that especially with our children. This morning we have the privilege of witnessing the baptism of June Stouchestike. And a friend, a colleague of mine pointed out in a conversation last week, we don't baptize babies. We baptize at God's command members of the covenant. Many of whom happen to be babies. And Our calling with regard to all the members of the covenant is to remind each other what that baptism signifies. To remind each other of the significance and the trustworthiness of the one who has made those promises. And to encourage one another to live in the light of those promises. Trusting God. Showing Him our gratitude. So before we baptize June... We're going to remember some of, some of what this signifies. This form just gives us a brief summary. Uh, you can find it if you'd like to read along on page 9 in your Forms and Prayers book. But this, this gives us just a brief summary, just a, a brief flyover view of what baptism tells us. But it's a good reminder so that what we're doing, we don't do out of superstition or out of custom because that's what we do with babies in the church but rather wholeheartedly embracing the truths that lay beneath and behind this sign and seal. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, what the Lord has revealed to us in His Word about holy baptism can be summarized in this way. First, baptism teaches that we and our children are conceived and born in sin. That means that we are by nature children of wrath, and for that reason cannot be members of Christ's kingdom unless we are born again. Baptism, whether by immersion or sprinkling, teaches that sin has made us so impure that we must undergo a cleansing which only God can accomplish. By this we are admonished to detest ourselves, to humble ourselves before God, and to turn to Him for our cleansing and salvation. Second, 
Baptism signifies and seals to us the washing away of our sins through Jesus Christ. For this reason we are baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we are baptized into the name of the Father, God the Father testifies and seals to us that He makes an eternal covenant of grace with us and adopts us as His children and heirs. Therefore, He promises to provide us with everything good and to protect us from all evil or turn it to our profit. When we are baptized into the name of the Son, God the Son seals to us that He washes us in His blood from all our sins. Christ unites us to Himself so that we share in His death and resurrection. Through this union with Christ, we are freed from our sins and accounted righteous before God. And when we are baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit assures us by this holy sacrament that He will make His home within us and will sanctify us as members of Christ. He will impart to us what we have in Christ, namely the washing away of our sins and the daily renewing of our lives. As a result of his work within us, we shall finally be presented without the stain of sin among the assembly of the elect in life eternal. Third, the covenant of grace contains both promises and obligations. Having considered the promises, we now consider those obligations. Through baptism, God calls us and places us under obligation to live in new obedience to him. This means that we must cling to this one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We must trust in Him and love Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We must renounce the sinful way of life. We must put to death our old nature and show by our lives that we belong to God. And if we through weakness should fall into sin, we must not despair of God's mercy nor use our weakness as an excuse to keep on sinning. Baptism is a seal and a totally reliable witness that we have an eternal covenant with God. Now, our children should not be excluded from baptism because of their inability to understand its meaning. Just as without their knowledge they share in Adam's condemnation, so are they without their knowledge received to grace in Christ. God's gracious attitude toward us and our children is revealed in what he said to Abraham, the father of believers. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. The Apostle Peter also testifies to this with these words, For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Therefore God formerly commanded that children be circumcised as a seal of the covenant and of the righteousness that comes by faith. Christ also recognized that children are members of the covenant people when he embraced them, laid his hands upon them, and blessed them. Since baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign and seal of the covenant, our children should be baptized as heirs of God's kingdom and of his covenant. As children grow up, their parents are responsible for teaching them the meaning of baptism. In order that we may now administer this holy sacrament of God to his glory, for our comfort, and to the edification of the church, let us in prayer now call upon his name. Almighty and eternal God, long ago you severely punished an unbelieving and unrepentant world in holy judgment by sending a flood. But in your great mercy, you also saved and protected believing Noah and his family. You drowned obstinate Pharaoh and his whole army in the Red Sea, and you brought your people Israel through the sea on dry ground. 
In those acts, you revealed the meaning of baptism and the mercies of your covenant in saving your people, who of themselves deserved your condemnation. We therefore pray that in your infinite mercy, you will graciously look upon this child and bring her into union with your Son, Jesus Christ, through your Holy Spirit. May she be buried with Christ into death and be raised with him to walk in newness of life. We pray that she may follow Christ day by day, may joyfully bear her cross, and may cling to him in true faith, firm hope, and ardent love. Comfort her in your grace, so that when she leaves this life and its constant struggle against the power of sin, she may appear before the judgment seat of Christ, your Son, without fear. And we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ who with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the one and only God, lives and reigns forever. Amen. Jake and Jackie, I'd invite you to come forward, and also Elder Viersen. Good morning, girls. How are you today? This is a kind of a special day, isn't it? It's always a special day when we get together for worship, isn't it? But we get to see June's baptism. That's pretty special, isn't it? Yeah. Remember, she won't remember this. Lucy, do you remember your baptism? No. Your parents do. And so they can tell you about it, right? And you guys get to tell June that you were there. You saw it. That's pretty special, isn't it? Well, Jake and Jackie, it's a privilege to be able to do this. Before we do, we want to ask the questions that we always ask, that we might be assured um, of the the significance, or that, that the significance is understood and embraced by you all. So, beloved in Christ the Lord... As you have now heard, baptism is given to us by God to seal his covenant to us and to our children. We must therefore use the sacrament for the purpose that God intended and not out of superstition or mere custom. That it may be clear that you are doing what God commands, you are to answer the following questions sincerely. One, do you acknowledge that our children who are conceived and born in sin and are subject to the misery that sin brings, even the condemnation of God are sanctified in Christ, and so, as members of his church, ought to be baptized. Secondly, do you acknowledge that the teaching of the Old and New Testaments, summarized in the articles of the Christian faith and taught in this Christian church, is the true and complete doctrine of salvation? Third, do you sincerely promise to do all that you can to teach this child and to have her taught this doctrine of salvation? What is your answer? June Valerie, correct? You don't want to get that wrong. (laughs) If you'd bring her forward. June Valerie, I now baptize you into the name of God the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It is truly a blessing to witness the baptism of one of our children. And to remember that just as surely as that water dampens her head. And you can see the water, right? It's dripping. 
And that's how real God's promises are to cleanse us from sin, right? And to make us his own people. That's pretty real, isn't it? And we all have a role in this as well. So do you, the people of the Lord, promise to receive this child in love, to pray for her, to help care for her instruction in the faith, and to encourage and sustain her in the fellowship of believers? What is your answer? God help us. Amen. Well, Brother Vierson, if you would... Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is with much gratitude that we approach your throne of grace now as we've seen uh, the grace of baptism uh, poured out here onto June, and we are thankful for that. We're thankful that you are the one who calls us into your, uh, into your kingdom. We pray that you would use her as an arrow in the war that we are engaged in, uh, against the, the works of darkness, protect her from the attacks that come so frequently from the world, from the devil, and, and that will come from her own flesh. And we pray that your wisdom would be upon Jake and Jackie, that they would have the courage to bring her up in the way that she should go. We also ask that you would stir your people here to take seriously the task that you have given us of training and encouraging and shepherding June and Rose and Lucy and all children of the congregation. All these things we ask for your glory and for the exaltation of Christ. Amen. We now continue our asking of God for his help as we sing together number 416, Our Children, Lord, in Faith and Prayer. Let's stand and sing uh, all the stanzas of 416.
As we come before the Lord in uh, congregational prayer, uh, just a couple of uh, a couple of updates. Um, Bruce Smith remains uh, remains at Faith Hospice in Trillium Woods. Uh, pray that the Lord would continue to comfort uh, Bruce and Linda and their family during this time, and and also Dan Van Ens uh, underwent surgery last Wednesday to remove some nasal polyps. Um, and praise the Lord that the surgery was successful. Please pray for continued healing and strengthening for him. Um, also. Judy Feenstra's sister-in-law, Marsha Muhlenberg, was recently diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. So please keep Marsha and her family in your prayers as well. Let's pray. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, You are so good and gracious to us. When we see Your covenant sign and seal poured out upon one of our children, It strikes us anew how helpless we are, like babes in arms, unable to contribute even the smallest amount to our salvation, or for that matter, to our sanctification. For the very faith that unites us to Christ, for the strength and the will to turn from our sins and to embrace your holiness for all of it, We stand utterly and completely indebted to You. And so, Lord, we come before You this day, needy and wanting, knowing that we need to repent of our sins, knowing that we need to put off the old man, and knowing that we can do so only by Your strength, knowing that we need to cling to Christ as our only hope, but recognizing that apart from your strength, we can't even do that. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you anew. And we pray that you would provide what each one of us needs each day. You know our struggles. You know our hardships. You know our doubts, our fears, our worries, and also our joys. And, Lord, we pray that you would provide for each one of us the faith and the strength that we need to not just endure, but to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Savior. And Lord, we pray that you would use us, each one, from the youngest of our babes to the most senior saint in our midst, to bring honor and glory unto you as we testify to a watching world that you are the reason that we live, that you are the one who has given us forgiveness and life eternal. And Lord... Use all of the circumstances of life to drive home to us the reality and the truth that we are yours. That we, that we are your sons and daughters. And that life has meaning and purpose only because we are yours. Father, we bring before you the needs of this congregation. You know them so much better than we do. We thank you for June and pray that you would build her up and strengthen her and grow her in the faith and likewise all of our children. Lord, use us to nurture and disciple and strengthen them, not by human wisdom, but by your word and by the power of your spirit. And bless those children yet in the womb 
that they might safely be brought forth at the time that you have ordained, and that they too might grow among us, being encouraged by the saints, being strengthened by your people and by your word, and indwelt by your spirit. And Lord, we pray for those who are struggling with various ailments of the flesh. We pray that you would be with Bruce and Linda to comfort and encourage them as Bruce is under hospice care, as the the cancer has spread and continued its march through his, his body. We pray that you would comfort them with the sure promises of life unending and of blessings perfect and pure. Lord, we pray for Dan and for Kathy as Dan recovers from his surgery and uh, also continues to undergo chemotherapy. We pray that you would bless and strengthen him and that you would enable him and Kathy to testify to your perfect care day by day. Likewise, for others of our members who are undergoing various health trials, we think of Bob Uh, recovering from his surgery, Linda receiving treatment for her uh, continued digestive issues, Keith and Lori as they deal with, as Keith deals with dizziness and headaches and uh, Lori with, with Parkinson's and Lord we pray that you would continue to bless and strengthen them for Joel and Maggie um, as they deal with um, Joel's cancer and uh, Maggie's cardiac issues and uh, for Larry dealing with fatigue and other symptoms of, uh, of his health struggles. Lord, we pray for each one of these and many others. You know us inside and out, intimately. You know those who are wrestling with depression, those who are struggling with doubts, those whose lives have been turned upside down by by arguments and falling out with loved ones and friends. Lord, we know that this world is broken in its sin, but we also know that your sovereignty is so great that you're able to even use these difficulties and these trials to draw us closer to you. And we pray that you would do it that you would enable us to see your power and your grace and your goodness in all of, the, all of the joys, but also the struggles. And Lord, we pray that you would be with our loved ones as well. Uh, those who are wrestling with hardships and difficulties, like Marcia with her pancreatic cancer, like uh, Travis's cousin Nick, uh, dealing also with cancer, and many others. Lord, we pray that you would provide for them as well and use us to give them encouragement. And Lord, we pray that not just on this day of rest and worship, but throughout the week, you would enable us to nurture and strengthen and encourage and build one another up, reminding each other of your perfect promises, of your constant presence of your goodness. Give us eyes to see your fatherly care and cause us never to fall away, but rather day by day teach us to to choose to trust in Christ by the power that you've given us 
And to live in a way that demonstrates that we have been made different. That no longer are we sons and daughters of Adam, but now we are the children of God in Christ. To that end, Lord, I pray that you would would bless the preaching of the word. That it might strengthen us and renew our commitment to you. And that it might also equip us to give a good reason for the hope within us. So that when people ask us, we can lead them to you. Reminding them of the weighty consequence of rejecting you. But also reminding them of your readiness to receive all who turn to you in repentance and faith. Now we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to look together to God's Word, um, let's stand and sing once more. We're going to sing from number 182, which is a rendering of Psalm 94. Uh, We'll sing stanzas 1 and 2, 4 and 5. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapters 8 and 9. We're going to pick up where we left off last time at Exodus 8 verse 20 and read through the 12th verse of chapter 9. These are the 4th, 5th, and 6th plagues poured out upon Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, 
Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. And say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also on the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said it would not be right to do so. For the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also. And he did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them into the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Amen. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, sin 
always carries a great cost. Because sin is rebellion against the Lord our God, who is the supreme King of kings. And our God is just. He insists that those who rebel against Him pay the appropriate, the just price. Now, of course, those who rebel against Him don't want to admit, even to themselves, how high the cost of sin is. The thought terrifies them. So they they turn aside. They pretend that the bill will never come due. And they go about their life as though all was well. But once in a while, once in a while, God forces men to take a glimpse at the cost that their sin is accruing. And then, whether they choose to continue ignoring or not, they have no excuse for thinking that there will not be a consequence for their sin. Only those who repent before God, only those who turn to Him humbly and by faith, can avoid the cost of their sin. They avoid it, not because their sin is not costly, but because God Himself pays the price. That's a lesson that all of God's people need to know, and that's a lesson that we get from these three plagues. I thought about changing the text for today since we had the blessing of a baptism. But you know, the lesson we get in this text is exactly the lesson that we need to teach little June as she grows up. Because in this world, in this culture, the prevailing message, even in a lot of so-called churches, the prevailing message is... Just do your best and it'll all be fine. Our God, Veggie Tales, if you remember them, our God is the God of second chances. Nope. Nope. Doesn't matter how many chances He gives me, I'm going to fail. I'm going to rack up a debt that I can't pay and that I'll work on for all eternity. But if we turn to Christ in repentance and faith, repentance that's born of faith, He pays the whole price. And we're exempt from the cost of the rebellion that we have committed. That's the lesson of this text. That's the lesson that our children need to hear. And that was the lesson that God impressed so powerfully, even upon His enemies in Egypt. And that's really the simple theme that we find in this text. The Lord shows His enemies the great cost of their rebellion. And as he shows his enemies the great cost of their rebellion, the first thing he does is emphasize a distinction in his judgment, which is what we see in the first plague. Notice how at the beginning of our text, the Lord sends Moses and Aaron to confront Pharaoh at the water in the morning. That should sound familiar. That's the way they confronted him before the first plague. God is reminding Pharaoh, you already heard, you already know what you're obligated to do. And you have refused. And so the first thing Moses is to remind him is that he's heard God's command. God is the sovereign king. God is the true God. He is the one to whom Israel belongs. And he has informed Egypt's king that he would claim his people. He wants to bring them out where they will worship. 
And if Pharaoh refuses, it will be costly. But he won't pay the price alone. Because Pharaoh is acting on behalf of his nation. What he chooses, what he decides, they will pay the price. Now there's an interesting word play here at the the start of what Moses says to show the, the connection between God's command and the consequence of disobeying. The Lord commands, let my people go. The verb is shalak. But if Pharaoh refuses, he is told, then God will let go a swarm. Shalak. In other words, either you let them go or I'll let go something that you don't want to see. Now what exactly is it that he would let go, that he would send out upon the people of Egypt? The word there indicates a swarm. It doesn't tell us exactly what the swarm is. It's clear that it's a swarm of insects. We're not told the exact genus. But what we are told is that they will cover the land. No one among the people of Egypt will be exempt from Pharaoh to his servants to the lowliest among their society. Every one of them will be utterly and absolutely swarmed by these insects. Now, they weren't unfamiliar with insects. The rivers, the canals that filled the populated areas of Egypt, they were perfect breeding grounds for insects. And the the houses of that age didn't have windows. They were accustomed to the nuisance of, of flies and mosquitoes and the like in their homes. But this would be a swarm unlike anything they had ever seen. However, however, God does something new here. Verse 22, Moses says, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Until this point, it appears that everyone suffered the same consequence for Pharaoh's rebellion. Both high and low, both free and slave. But now, God is making a distinction. Those who belong to Him will be spared. Those who trust in the Lord will be exempt from the consequence of the rebellion. And the Lord says in verse 23, I will put a division. Interestingly, the word there literally means a deliverance. I will put a deliverance. Between my people and yours. It was changed to division or smoothed out to division in the Greek translation of the Old Testament because deliverance seems kind of jarring there. But I think that word is important because what it's showing us is that the people of Israel were not innocent. Of rebellion. The people of Israel were not unworthy of God's wrath. It's just that God Himself had chosen to deliver them. God Himself had taken the cost on Himself. They would escape the cost of rebellion because of God's mercy. Well, Moses assures him tomorrow this sign shall happen. Notice that He. He waits a little bit. In part, the specificity of that is helpful because then Pharaoh will know that when tomorrow this plague befalls the land, it was just as Moses said. 
But it's more than that. This too is God's mercy. He doesn't simply say you've refused, so therefore here is the plague. He gives him a day to anticipate, a day to consider, a day to think upon the cost that he is bringing not only upon himself, but upon all his people. A day to think about the deliverance that Israel will experience while Egypt is suffering. A day to repent. See, God does this even now. How often don't we read in the newspapers and sometimes see with our own eyes the pain and the suffering that befalls multitudes as hurricanes flatten coastlands, as tornadoes destroy towns. We see that and we grieve and we shake our heads. But understand that that is God's mercy. He's giving just the slightest foretaste of the judgment that's coming, but, but it delays. He delays. Giving people time. Because that's, that hurricane, that tornado, that flood, that famine, that disease, that's just the slightest taste of what is coming for those who reject God. And he says, tomorrow the full weight will be poured out. Tomorrow the full judgment will be felt. Because he's giving us time to repent. He's giving us time to change our minds and our hearts. To turn to Christ that that we might be among Israel. That we might be among those whom he delivers. Well, Pharaoh refuses. And so, verse 24, the Lord did so. And imagine the misery of enduring such a plague. It's interesting that as I was uh, preparing my sermon notes yesterday, I usually on, at some point on Saturday take a a walk with my sermon notes and just kind of go through them. And as I was doing so, um, I made the mistake of stopping by some berry bushes that were growing along the road and grabbing a handful. And just that brief stop was enough for the gnats to find me. And for the rest of my walk, I couldn't get away from the gnats. And I was thinking, okay, I get it, Lord. Uh, because they were in my eyes, they were in my ears, they were surrounding me. And that was just a few gnats. And I was able to escape them by going in the house. Can you imagine, for days on end, being utterly surrounded by whatever these insects were, whether they were gnats or flies or mosquitoes, swarming about you in the house and without. As you try to sleep, they're alighting on your face. As you try to eat, they're landing on your food. You try to speak to your neighbor to complain about the misery you're enduring and they fly into your mouth and your nose. How absolutely terrible that had to be. It wasn't very long before Pharaoh had enough. He summons Moses and Aaron. And he says, fine, worship the Lord your God, but you do it here. You see, he's not willing to give up all his sovereignty. He's not willing to give up his slave labor. You worship the Lord all you want, but you do it right here. Isn't that, isn't that what we're tempted to do? Yeah, I'll worship you, Lord. I'll, I'll get up on Sunday morning and go to church. I don't know if I want to give up Sunday evening, too. It's a good day for Bowdoin. Or, you know, fine, I'll give you the whole Lord's Day. But, you know, the rest of the week, 
I just want to fit in. I just want to belong. I want to feel like one of the gang. But God won't tolerate that. Moses says, no. For one thing, it's not what God commanded. God said that his people will go to the wilderness to worship him. But for another, Moses points out, it's unwise. The sacrifices that they would offer, the worship that they would bring, would be an abomination to the Egyptians. They would be offended. They would seek to stone them. And so Pharaoh relents, sort of. He says, they may go into the wilderness to worship the Lord, but he warns Moses, you must not go very far away. Now plead for me. And it's enough. Moses agrees to intercede on behalf of Egypt, but notice, notice his warning. He says, only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go. My friends, there's a lesson in that warning for us. The Lord desires all of us to repent of our rebellion, but He desires more than mere words. He wants our repentance to be genuine. He wants us to, our repentance to be continual. To be sure, we won't, we can't in this life perfectly rid ourselves of sin. In God's sovereign wisdom, we have to struggle against it all our lives, but He wants us to struggle against it. He wants us to continually turn away from our sin. That's something we need to emphasize to June. Because already, I know, if we talk to Jake and Jackie, we'll find that this adorable, uh, patient little girl, she, has, she probably has a temper. She already knows her own mind. Just like all of us did. And throughout our lives, we have to struggle against our various sins, our covetousness, our hatred, our desire for self-sovereignty. But we need to fight against it. We can't say one and done. We, we did it. Now we can go do what we want. No. It's got to be our daily struggle, our daily commitment that we'll turn away from the lusts and the sins of the flesh and we will turn unto the Lord our God. And if we won't, then we invite God's wrath. Well, having given the warning, Moses goes. He keeps his word. He prays to the Lord on behalf of Pharaoh and Egypt. And the Lord removed the swarms of flies such that not even one swarm remained. Notice how Christ-like Moses shows himself there. He goes and he intercedes on behalf of Pharaoh and God perfectly answers. Kids, that's what Jesus promises us. He says if we will come to him and seek his forgiveness. If we will come to Him and express our faith, He will plead before the Lord, our Heavenly Father. And all of the cost, all of the consequence of our sin, it's gone. We will be washed as clean of sin as the water of baptism can wash our bodies of dirt. He is faithful and true to His promise. If we turn to Him, He promises He will pray on our behalf. He will cleanse us of our sin. He will usher us into the fullness of eternal life. Recognize 
That lies right at the heart of the lesson of this fourth plague. This plague shows us, first of all, that God is, mer- that God is just, right? He will pour out His wrath upon those who persist in their rebellion. And His wrath will be miserable. You just imagine. Kids, that's your assignment for today. Later on, I want, you to, I want you to take a few minutes and ponder how terrible it would be to be just surrounded by swarms of flies or mosquitoes and you cannot get away. No matter what you do, no matter where you go, you go in the house, they're there. You go out of the house, they're there. You find a windy spot, they manage to keep up with the wind. You lay down, you pull your covers over, they're already under the covers. Imagine how terrible, that's just a foretaste of what our sins deserve. But God promises us if we repent, if we turn to Him, Christ will intercede on our behalf. He will set a deliverance between us and those who remain in their rebellion. He will plead for us and all of the cost of our sin will be gone. And why? Because we were so wise? Because we... No. Because He is merciful. Because He is good. That's the lesson we need to teach June. That's the lesson we need to remind one another of. Young people, when you see your your friends from church and they're doing the stuff that you know they shouldn't do and they're encouraging you to do it, you need to remind them. Yeah, we might manage to keep it from our parents, but we won't keep it from the Lord. We are called to a life of repentance. We are called to a life of discipleship. Let's not do that. Let's not do, let's not engage in that rebellion, in that evil. But let's trust in the Lord. Now, of course, Pharaoh, he wanted nothing to do with that. He continues to rack up a bill through his rebellion. So again, the Lord sends Moses to speak to him. Again, he will remind the king of God's command. Again, he will remind the king of God's judgment. Surely by this time, Pharaoh knows it's no idle threat. But the Lord will use this opportunity to expose the cost of the coming judgment. That's our second point. This time, God sends a plague on Egypt's livestock. Cattle, horses, donkeys, camels alike will be stricken. Now, we're not told precisely what disease God will pour out upon them. There's certainly no shortage of speculation. But we are told that it would be deadly. It would devastate Egypt's flocks and herds. Their barns would be empty. Their pastures would be barren. We learn from later plagues that not absolutely all of the livestock were killed, but certainly a vast majority of them. Now, what is the lesson? What is the message of that plague? It may be that there was a religious, matter of fact, it's almost certain there was some religious message involved. The Egyptians thought many animals were representative of or imaged their false gods. Cattle especially were closely associated with their deities, and so God was showing the powerlessness of their, of their false gods. But the primary lesson, primary lesson is simply this. Sin carries a high cost. Why was it that Pharaoh wouldn't let Israel go? Why was it that he wouldn't obey the Lord? They were his slaves. They were his workforce. They were his possession. 
and he wasn't going to give them up. Then he'd have to pay for the labor. He didn't want to do that. All these great building projects he had, all this maintenance for the previous building projects, he didn't want to have to pay for all that. He wanted his slave labor to do that. And so God says, well, if you're not going to let them go at my command, then I'm going to take all the wealth of your livestock. And you're not going to get paid for it. They're going to die. They're going to fall dead in their pastures and in their stalls. And there won't be a thing you can do about it. Seems an obvious lesson. That the God who made the heavens and the earth, the God who is so powerful that he could turn all of your water into blood, that he could cause frogs without number to fill your land, that he could absolutely harass you with all of these insects, that he could take away the wealth of your livestock in a moment. But people are good at turning a blind eye to what's obvious, aren't they? How many people spend themselves, devote themselves, religiously if I may say so, to the amassing of wealth? They want just a little bit more. They want a bigger home. They want more toys. They want a larger bank account. They want an opulent retirement fund. But are they going to take it with them? Will it last them unto eternity? Will they be able to enjoy all of that? Or will they, as Ecclesiastes remind us, leave it all to someone else? who may himself be a fool. Pharaoh's about to learn. If he won't turn over to the Lord what the Lord demands, then God will take from him that which he cherishes. And yet, Pharaoh hardens his heart. He still won't let the people go. And so God is just in exposing the cost of the king's rebellion even further and without warning. He tells Moses in verse 8, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Notice well the details of what he has him do. First, he has Moses take soot from the kiln. Some of the bricks and the tiles that they made were hardened by putting them out in the sun. But many, especially those who, that were used in uh, important roles in their building projects, would have been fired in a kiln. That's the kind of kiln that is referred to here. It's a big oven that you could put bricks in and it would harden them by fire. Moses would take soot from that kiln. And in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he could have no doubt of what happened, he's to throw it in the air. You see, this plague comes with the great symbolism. Because you refused to send your slaves away at my command, therefore, because of your sin regarding the slaves, this comes upon you. And what is it that comes upon him? God does two miracles here. He takes that handful of soot and he turns it into dust that covers the whole land. And then that dust, as it falls upon men, turns into boils, sores, 
That evidently, now we don't, again, we don't know what disease this might represent. It might be a disease that never before and never since has been seen. Or it might be some other uh, disease that we've seen subsequently. Regardless, we know that it caused misery. It didn't necessarily kill them, but it made them want to die. So racked with pain and misery were they. My friends, what is the message God is sending in that? Essentially, this is an intensifying of the message of the fifth plague. The fifth plague showed the price of your rebellion, the cost of your continued sin. I'm going to take away all of that which you treasure. I'm going to take away all of that wealth that you have amassed. And now he adds to that, and you will be miserable. Folks, this is an image of hell. This is a foretaste of what awaits all those who refuse to serve the Lord and who insist on trusting in themselves. All of those riches, all of that stuff that you loved, that you cherished, that you treasured up, it'll be gone. And you will be filled with misery. Misery that will make you Long for death, misery that will make you long for an end, and yet the end will not come. That's what Pharaoh had to see, and that's what we have to see. But you know what else we need to see? In Goshen, there was no wailing. Among the Israelites, there was no grief. Their livestock gazed happily. Their skin shone unblemished. We delight in these children who fill our pews. We should. They're a gift. They're a blessing. But we need to teach them from an early age. They are not their own, for they were bought with a price. What is your only comfort, children, in life and in death? Let us never say in answer to that, that I am an American, or that I am Dutch American, or that I am strong, or that I am smart, or that I am rich, or that... What is my only comfort? It is that I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the only comfort that will last unto eternity. That is the only comfort that will last beyond where our riches can endure. That is the only comfort that will keep us free from misery from now unto eternity. If we turn to Him in a true and living faith, if we turn to Him and set aside, out of our faith, set aside all that we've been tempted to cling to, then all of that abundant price that our sin has racked up, all of the cost of our rebellion, all of the judgment that we deserved, it's gone. It was already suffered. It was already paid for on the cross. And for us, there awaits life and joy and peace and prosperity unending. First in the presence of God in heaven and ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth. But we must submit to Him. That's what June needs to hear. That's what all these children need to hear. And they need to not just hear it, they need to see it.
See, if we truly trust in Christ, it's going to be evident. Pharaoh could have said, okay, I'll, I'll trust in the Lord. But we would have known it was a lie unless he sent Israel out, right? And it was clear that he didn't trust in God because he refused to send Israel out. He kept breaking his word. He kept refusing. How many are they who do the same thing? They go to church. They know when to rise and when to sit. They know all the songs. They can recite the Apostles' Creed without looking at it. But then when you see how they handled their wealth, then when you see how they handle their time, then when you see what their priorities are, then when you see their, their temper and their refusal to forgive and their cherishing up of offenses, when you see all of that, you recognize it was just words. It didn't penetrate to the heart. And for those folks on that last great day, Jesus will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. But if we trust him truly, we'll do what Pharaoh refused. We'll give to him all our riches, all our possessions, all our gifts, all our desires, all our life. Because we recognize, first of all, that he gave it all to us. We're just caretakers. But more than that, that he knows better. He does better than we ever could. And so we trust him. Let that be the lesson that June gets from us, not just in our words, but as she looks at our lives, as she sees how her parents love and forgive one another, as she sees how, her, how their friends at church use their riches to serve others, as she sees how her own friends delight to devote the Lord's Day to worshiping God, as she sees how others whom she offends forgive her. The Lord is gracious to show His enemies the cost of their rebellion. And He's gracious to show us, through the price that they paid, what awaits if we refuse to trust Him. But if we turn to Him, then we live in Goshen. We are exempt because the Lord has paid the price. May God cause all of our hearts to submit to Christ to enter Goshen, to be in fullness and in truth the people of His covenant through faith in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You loved us so much that You sent Your Son to suffer what we deserved. Fill us, we pray, with Your Spirit that we might embrace wholeheartedly and truly that which Jesus has done and that we might show our faith in Him by how we use all that You entrust to us, by how we obey You in every part of life, by how we seek to put off the sins and the rebellion that came so easily. And may You be glorified through us, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, in response, let's acknowledge together in song that the day of judgment is coming, the day of paying will soon be at hand, but that Christ will deliver all who bow the knee before Him. We sing number 300.
70. Number 370, Day of Judgment, Day of Wonder. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have blessed us so abundantly in worldly wealth. Receive now the worship of our tithes and our offerings, that we might through them show that we trust you and that we're thankful for your perfect fatherly care. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our offering song is, uh, again, number 182, which we sang before the, uh, before the sermon. We're going to sing stanzas 6 and 7, 11 and 12, using an alternate tune that should be pretty familiar to you. 6 and 7, 11 and 12 of 182.
Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.